Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY20 at checkout to save 20%. Welcome back to another G edition of the GDIY series. Here with me, as usual, is Nick B. Miller. Nick, how you doing today? Doing well, Nick. Hey, everybody. Glad to be with you. Yeah, man. So this is uh, this will be a fun one. You know, this is something that I think anybody that's been hunting in general, not even so much as grouse hunting can relate to, is the differences between... Uh, federal land versus private land versus public land like county and state land uh stuff like that to where it does make a big difference in how we not only are allowed to hunt but also manage the lands correct yeah i mean absolutely nick i mean obviously when most people think about um some of the best opportunities for kind of hunting access it's it's on our public lands right primarily our wmas and also our national forests here in the southern appalachians so um, so that's key. Obviously, some folks have their private lands they enjoy hunting as well. But, uh, you know, one of the major um, needs on the public lands front is just to be able to have high quality habitat that people can run their dogs through and actually find birds. Right. Just an outsider looking at this, just common sense. If I had to guess, private land is going to be a little easier for you to come up with a management plan and implement it than what it would be on public land. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, if you're thinking about it in terms of ease of kind of developing and implementing a habitat project, um, I think that's definitely fair. Um, you look at the, you know, regulatory environment um, that comes along with managing our national forests. And, you know, there's a lot of folks within the Forest Service that want to see more young forest creation and more open forest creation and want to see more grouse habitat. But they have a lot of you know, for lack of a better word, bureaucratic hoops to jump through. There's a lot of regulation. There's National Forest Management Act, National Environmental Protection Act, many of which are really well-designed policies, but also create a challenge when it comes to um, the opportunities to do some active forest management on the landscape. You compare that to private lands, um, and things are a lot easier from a regulatory perspective, for sure. The ceiling is kind of capped compared to uh, public land, right? Like, the, so the opportunity to put a bigger impact on the landscape quicker, even with all the challenges, still comes through federal and public land. Or would you say that that's not necessarily the case all the time? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the size of ownerships, um, one of the reasons that for us partnering with the U.S. Forest Service is such a big priority here in the Southern Appalachians is because that's the single largest land base under one ownership, 
right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. Forest Service owns a large chunk of land and a lot of forest land that's contiguous, which is significant from a kind of habitat connectivity um, perspective in terms of wildlife expansion and use of those places. You look at private lands and land is a lot more you know, checkerboarded. Um, we call it parcellation or fragmentation of uh, those land holdings across the landscape, which kind of makes um, bringing together multiple different individuals that own land um, into a broader kind of landscape scale vision uh, more challenging. So yeah, it's an interesting kind of point. It's, we have the ease of being able to move forward and create habitat on private lands, but also we have the challenge of scale to some degree. And on public lands, it's kind of flipped, right? <laughs> it's more challenging sometimes to get stuff going, but there's also uh, opportunity for taking things to scale. So. Well, and then another thing as a private landowner, I recently just did a bunch of prairie restoration out here on my private land uh, through Equip Funding and Quail Forever and TWRA kind of helped me. We hear all the time a lot about these federal programs and, and opportunities to get management on the ground. But as a landowner, is there other stuff outside of the typical equip funding, like I just mentioned, that is available to landowners that kind of kind of help with the uh, the cost of doing something like this? Yeah, no, absolutely, Nick. Good question. So if you look at private lands, um, in general across the you know eastern united states and the southern appalachians more specifically um the vast majority of our forest land here in the southern appalachians about 50 percent is actually owned by what we refer to as family forest landowners or you know non-industrial private landowners just folks like you or maybe a lot of folks listening in that inherited land kind of intergenerationally or were able to acquire land through other means and typically have parcels that are 50 to you know 250 acres not huge um a lot of the kind of surveys that have gone out so there's the big one is kind of the national woodland donor survey but there's a lot of other more kind of local surveys um, where people actually reach out to forest landowners and learn about their behavior and why they own their forests and how they manage it Those surveys kind of all tell us the same story, which is that most family forest, most uh, non-industrial landowners are not actively managing their forest, although most have reasons for owning their land and goals that are compatible with forestry and with habitat management, right? Wildlife ranks one of the top four reasons that family forest owners across the country report that they own their land. Um, But many of them are not working with a professional forester and are not receiving the technical and financial assistance to really bring them to that stage of actually actually doing some commercial timber harvesting or doing some other kind of treatments um, on their forest. So there's there's a lot of opportunities to perform outreach and engagement and technical and financial assistance to those landowners kind of as part of the overall equation of, of uh, restoring habitat conditions. So more directly to your question, Nick, about kind of resources available. I mean, <clears throat> I think that every kind of, um, you know, landowner that's interested in doing something um, on their land should, should work with a um, professional biologist or a professional forester when it comes to getting advice on kind of, um, you know, what to do on their forest. Uh, there's a lot of great consulting foresters out there Uh, There's a lot of great resources from state agencies to help support landowners for getting resources and plans um, to do some work on their land. 
And then you mentioned it too. I mean, there's, there's some of these great federal programs through USDA, um, Natural Resources Conservation Service that provide just direct financial assistance for landowners to do sustainable forestry and to do habitat work. So there's a lot of great opportunities out there. They contact you guys. You can get, you can come out there and give the landowners that technical assistance and the advisement on how to go about getting financial assistance, as well as maybe linking them up with the forester. I mean, that's ultimately your position, right? But I know that you're more public land. Is that something that you guys also focus on private land? Like, would you be the point of contact for that as well? Or do they just need to open up Google and and find a forester in their area? We have currently um, three wildlife foresters uh, here in the Southern Appalachians that I supervise. So as the forest conservation director, um, you know, I'm kind of focused on really building our program, uh, hiring new foresters to help provide some of that technical assistance and capacity for work on the ground. Um, some of those forester positions are more public lands focused. So for example, um, we hired a public lands wildlife forester, uh, a couple months ago in Virginia, Charlie Mize. And Charlie is sitting on the Clinch Ranger district of the Jefferson national forest, helping with them implement a bunch of public lands projects, um, every day <clears throat> in North Carolina we were able to bring on Charlie Fairs as our private lands wildlife forester uh, through an agreement with the American Bird Conservancy and also with NRCS. And Charlie is 100% private lands focused. He is directly, you know, driving out, meeting with landowners, surveying their property, uh, writing a forest management plan, um, setting them up to be able to receive an NRCS contract for, for cost share, um, helping them identify contractors, and kind of working with them through the whole process. So um, he's doing a lot of that work. In Kentucky, we just hired an all-lands wildlife forester. That's a bit of a hybrid model, Nick. Okay. So Mike Rich, we're bringing on as this kind of all-lands position to help move forward um, some of our projects on federal, state, and private lands. So as per the kind of topic of our conversation, uh, Mike's coming on board in just a week to be hitting the ground running with coordinating our stewardship projects with the Forest Service, to be uh, helping set up timber sales and do some forest stand improvement work at Kentucky Ridge State Forest. And then also he'll be writing uh, management plans and providing technical assistance for private landowners in Southeast Kentucky as well. So it looks different in the different states, but yes, in those places where we have foresters that we've been bringing on, that part of their role is, is private lands technical assistance. Uh, they're, they're providing that direct direct technical and financial assistance to landowners. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important. I mean, coming from somebody who just recently went, went through it myself for other management plans, it, it can be a bit daunting to look at all these programs and this requires that, this requires that, you have to meet this by that certain date. So contacting somebody that that's their job to understand it, to walk you through it is a heck of a lot better than kind of reading all the fine print so that you kind of understand what is all out there. Yeah, I totally agree, Nick. And I mean, there's enough kind of hurdles to, you know, a private landowner, you know, figuring out um, how to do kind of a good forestry or a good habitat project on their land. Uh, let alone kind of the uh, the challenges of sometimes working with a federal agency like NRCS, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yep. So to me, the beauty of being able for us to be able to staff some of these shared positions with NRCS is that they can have the nimbleness of working for a nonprofit organization, 
but they can also be embedded within an NRCS office and be able to navigate some of the complexities of that federal system. So they can kind of cut through some of the some of the headache or some of the challenges and just be able to kind of directly connect landowners to that, that technical and financial um, support. So you, often, can, you kind of get a side benefit of a miniature lobbyist almost on behalf of RDS <laughs> for that. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, let, let's talk about, I mean, we've primarily only talked about private uh, so far. Let's talk about public. And I guess there's really nowhere else to start the difference between state land and federal land because they act completely different in your realm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to our kind of previous conversation about what you can and can't do and what some of the challenges are, I think, um, you know, there's differences between state and federal lands in that regard, too. And so maybe starting with with state. Right. So, you know, state lands um, in general, if you're looking at like the whole of the southern Appalachian region, um, compose a smaller amount of our forest land than than federal or private does. Um, however, some of those properties um, represent some pretty unique, significant opportunities for for doing some habitat work and some active forest management. Um, you know, you were out at the North Cumberland WMA, right, where we uh, were working with TWRA on a few clear cuts and shelter wood harvests and some some roadside plantings and things like that. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunities to identify some of those state lands, especially some of these larger properties like the North Cumberland WMA and Catoosa, where, you know, restoring those conditions to the right mix of habitats on those properties, you know, has a huge opportunity to benefit um, some of the species that we care about, including grouse and woodcock. So when it comes to state lands, <clears throat> you know, we are primarily working with the different state uh, forest agencies and the different state wildlife agencies. So every state has their own you know, wildlife agency and their own um, forestry agency. And each of those agencies have their own land ownerships. Um, so there's state forests, right? And then there's state wildlife management areas or state game lands. Um, managed for slightly different purposes. One is more timber forestry focused and one is more kind of forestry wildlife habitat focused. Um, but opportunities for great partnerships and great habitat work on both. Um, and so we, we have agreements right now with um, at least one of those agencies in each of the six states that we're working in here in the Southern Appalachians. Um, and those agreements uh, look different kind of in the different states we're working. But it's all part of the same deal, whether it's private, state or federal we are working to increase capacity for active forest management to restore those those desired conditions that we know forest wildlife depend upon, which is largely an increased proportion of young and open forest on the landscape, right? Yeah. Um, and so really, I'll give you an example, a really cool way that we've been able to work with some of these state wildlife agencies in the region is through leveraging resources to focus on some implementation on their state land holdings. And so uh, the Pittman-Robertson funds that these states manage, Pittman-Robertson funds are the result of the Pittman-Robertson Act, uh, the Wildlife Restoration Act, um, that created a mechanism for an excise tax on um, the sale of firearms and ammunition and hunting and fishing equipment. That money goes into the state's budget, the state wildlife agency's budget, to pay for uh, wildlife restoration and habitat projects on their state lands. But to access those funds, 
states require non-federal um, cash, non-federal resources that they can match and leverage to be able to access those federal Pittman Robertson dollars. So bear with me. That's a little bit winding, but let's jump into that for a second because I think this is really important because I hear it all the time to where just because they see a, a, a big number from the Pittman Robertson Act, they're like, oh, well, that can go to this type of work. Like what you just said, for the Pittman Robertson matches funds that isn't federal, right? So it's important for people to understand that uh, everything weighs differently. So the way they match it is going to be completely different on it. Say you're doing just cleanup work or forestry work, like every single project is worth a different amount from cashing in on the Pittman-Robertson Act. Am I, am I right on that? For the state to have access and use those Pittman-Robertson dollars, they need to be able to provide non-federal resources because the Pittman-Robertson, because it's, you know, an act of Congress, right? Um, those are translated to federal dollars. And this, the state needs to come up with non-federal dollars to be able to match against those federal dollars to spend them on a given habitat project. So great opportunity for partnership with a conservation partner, a nonprofit organization such as Rough Grouse Society or Quail Forever or NWTF or TNC, where you know we, we work with chapters, we help do fundraising, we help bring in grants, we help bring in some of those non-federal resources that the state can match and spend down through their Pittman-Robertson fund, right? Mm -hmm. So that project that you saw at North Cumberland WMA, where we um, you know, worked with TWRA on over 500 acres of young forest creation, um, that project was directly supported through both our chapter-raised funds from the Appalachian Highlands chapter in Tennessee and Virginia, and matched three to one with the state's PR funds. So we put $5,000 into that agreement. They put $15,000. We helped grease the skids with some road maintenance and some seeding and facilitating kind of a commercial harvest to occur. So that's a great opportunity for individual projects, but take that even to think about additional kind of opportunities for leveraging those resources. We just put in a funding request to Georgia DNR a lot of states right now are really flush with some of these Pittman-Robertson dollars, and they're looking for opportunities to partner to help spend them down. And so we just put in a funding request to Georgia DNR, which is uh, tentatively approved at this point, to fully fund a public lands wildlife forester in North Georgia, All where right. we can come in with some of those non-federal resources. They can match them three to one. And we can hire a position for three years to help with habitat management on the Chattahoochee National Forest. So just great opportunity to work with them to both leverage funding, but also to help um, realize objectives from their state wildlife action plan, yeah. which is kind of a whole other piece. And and one thing that it kind of came up when I was at North Cumberland, and me and you have talked a number of times about this, so I kind of know your answer on this already because I keep yeah. throwing it at you. And uh, it's it's amazing how the answer doesn't change. Uh, but talk to me, somebody that's saying, well, if it's easier to cut on state lands versus federal lands and the most recent success in some areas, Tennessee is a good example of there's been more cutting on state land than federal land. Why don't right. we focus more on that? I mean, I know the answer is, well, we should do both. Right. But like, 
tell me about you know the the scalability of the federal lands because that's ultimately where you always end up going when I ask this question, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think um, to default to the answer you already provided <laughs> is I think we do need to be able to walk and chew gum with this kind of thing. It's not one or the other; it's both. And part of our strategy, part of our conservation strategy um, here in the Southern Appalachians is really focused on pursuing this all lands approach, right? To, to looking at those opportunities to increase um, young forest and open forest, restore habitat on private state and federal lands. That said, we definitely are thinking about kind of triage within that mm -hmm. and how to prioritize resources to be effective and strategic. And so with some of our work, on the Cherokee National Forest and other national forests in the region, the thing that, you know, I don't like, that you probably don't like, that a lot of folks don't like, is just how long projects take to develop and implement on our national forest lands, right? Yeah. Like on the Cherokee National Forest, it literally takes two to three, sometimes more years to when the Forest Service says, we want to do a project here, to when something starts happening. And that's something that we can we can help with in certain ways and we can dive into that. But some of it is inherent in their their regulation and their requirements to satisfy um, the National Forest Management Act and the National Environmental Protection Act and others. Um, and so there's there's challenges there. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas to your point, state lands have uh, state lands have a bit less of a maybe. Um, restrictive regulatory environment and some more flexibility to do habitat work, especially on WMAs. And so while we are working to develop pipelines of projects um, and while we are working to identify opportunities for stewardship projects to implement them with the Forest Service on the Cherokee and other forests, we're also working with the state to leverage resources on their state lands at the same time. So, um, you know, we we're doing that and we're also growing our capacity. So we've been rolling out kind of this, this new model of our conservation program over the past two years since I've been on board. And um, we can't be everywhere at once. We can't be doing everything all the time. Um, but we have brought on three wildlife foresters. Um, we're planning to hire a forester in Tennessee uh, this, this summer as well. Um, forgot to mention that before. Um, then we've got, you know, some growth in Georgia with a potential position and another forester in North Carolina. So we're, we're growing the network, um, and it takes some time. So, um, my, my plan kind of in the first five years is to have, uh, one to two wildlife foresters working in the mountain regions of each of those six states where we work. Uh, okay. So then that's a big change from essentially years of having, you know, we haven't had, a forester in each state, let alone two forcers in each state, especially down in this region for a long time. So, yep. you know, that, that should just, you want to talk about scalability, that should help you out just by, by help alone, just more hands in the pot, more, more division. Everybody can kind of go there to where you can get more private lands and you can develop more relationships on public and state lands that'll get trees on the ground faster. Absolutely, Nick. And I mean, your point's well taken, though, too, that, you know, what's the point where you kind of cut your loss and pivot a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> and we, ha we have run into that with some some uh, some partners that we've where we tried to get some projects going with some national forests. And it's just 
the, the desire to kind of work with us to increase that pace and scale of, of their work hasn't been there. And, and we've, we've, we've kind of put that a little on the back burner and we've pivoted to, all right, we need to build out this agreement with the state to get this moving forward. And that's, that's in part, um, you know, why you saw some of the work that you saw at North Cumberland WMA when we were out there is because I talked to Brian Chandler and some folks at TWRA when I first was coming on about opportunities for quick wins and opportunities to really, you know, share some success and build some, build some, build a relationship with them. Yeah. And like you said, the quick wins may not, you know, rehab the entire grouse population over, over one season, but the quick wins is just enough to kind of get grease the skids a little bit, get the ball rolling and, and let's go this project, then roll into the next one. It starts getting a little motivation going, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's really interesting. I mean, it's obviously there's different challenges, different uh, opportunities given whether it's private, public or, you know, federal it, the, the important thing is if you're private, every little bit helps. You know, is there a minimum amount of acreage? And this will be my last question as we wrap this up. Is there a minimum amount of acreage that you would say that a private landowner should probably have before reaching out? Or does like two acres count? So there, there is an actual threshold when it comes to farm bill program enrollment, at least for certain programs. Um, we, we work a lot right now with the Working Lands for Wildlife program, which is which is great opportunity and actually some more streamlined funding opportunities than, than EQIP can provide. Um, I think that program has a 50 acre cutoff, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but either way, 50 acres is, you know, kind of a, a workable, um, chunk of forest land when we think about doing a you know good sustainable forestry project. Um, but that said, you know, I think anyone, um, should, should reach out if they're interested, um, to me or to some of our other partners that provide some of that private lands assistance. Um, and I will say this, Nick, as one last plug for our Tennessee wildlife forester we're going to be bringing on. Um, that position is going to be functioning as in all lands wildlife forester as well. Okay. So the plan is to have them based in the greater Knoxville area and to help with state and private lands kind of on the north end of the Cumberland Plateau uh, and also be available to help move forward some of our agreements on the Cherokee National Forest in East Tennessee. So they'll be messing around in the North Cumberland Plateau, getting more work going on state and private. And then they'll also be getting out and doing inspections and our stewardship sales and other work that we're working with the Cherokee on too. Fantastic. I love hearing about work and uh, more opportunities on the Cumberland Plateau, considering I pretty much live on it. So, uh, <laughs> so it's good to hear that Georgia uh, might be getting some help. Tennessee might get some help. And, uh, it, you know, again, thanks for coming on, sharing your experience and, and uh, knowledge on just kind of explaining the different types of land, because I don't think everybody fully understands that just because you can do it on your own private land doesn't mean you can just go out there on public land and start firing up a chainsaw. Unfortunately, I wish that was the case. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, Nick, we'll check back next month with another very fun and exciting topic. Next month, we're going to be talking about stewardship agreements. And I think we just heard a bunch of coffee pots come on and, and start getting ready because it's, <laughs> it's not everybody's most favorite topics, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you, Nick. I'm excited about that, though. And I think we, we did a good job covering the state and private today. So it'll be great to dive more into the, the Forest Service and the way that we're working with them under stewardship projects uh, next month. So that sounds great. 
Thanks for listening to GDIY. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to take a moment to subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Gundog It Yourself. Thanks again, and happy hunting. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukonuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pups start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.